Greetings and salutations. This is Replacement Level Morality. My name is Joseph. My name is Andrew. You know what I pay on a monthly basis, Andrew? Not taxes. That's once a year. You got me. Well, a lot of things, but prominently among them is my student loans, which makes me a bit of an oddity in Year of Our Lord 2022 America <laughs> that I continue to pay my student loans. But it's kind of a sucker move. There's 8% yeah. inflation and you're paying down something with no interest. Well, what I went to business school, my friend, so I don't have this goofy federal pseudo forgiveness going on. But uh, this is this is fresh off the presses from our perspective of recording, but maybe a, a tiny bit cold by the time this episode goes out. But today there was news that the presidential administration of one Joseph Robinette Biden is going to continue the third the third, my apologies to the other two, they're going to continue with the non-payment of student loans until June of 2023. And this is being done to provide space, runway, whatever opportunity for the Supreme Court to rule on the legality of the student loan forgiveness scheme that was cooked up by said Joseph Rodnet, Robinette Biden the uh, third a few months ago. You know, as part of this his plan to uh, get all of the uh, indebted millennials to vote for him, which worked, by the way. <laughs> they didn't turn out in large numbers. That is a lie you may have seen in the media. Actually, the turnout amongst eighteen to twenty nine year olds was lower than it was at the last midterm, like significantly so, like by fifty percent, but. They all did. Those who showed up, they certainly voted for him or at least his people. So bribery works, I guess, but always has. I have a particularly dark heart of, of distaste for student loan forgiveness and deferment talk. And not just because I'm still paying mine because I went to business school, but well, all of yours are privately held. So correct. Right. That is correct. Any forgiveness anyway? I'm not getting any forgiveness anyway. But more that the legal basis for this deferment, if you recall, was economic collapse as a consequence of the pandemic. That was coming on uh, very soon here, going to be uh, three years ago. Three years ago here. And, And by the time we reach this, this new destination, it's going to be over three years since that pause began and was under incredibly exigent circumstances, right? Like we we're shutting down the economy. People will not be making money. We've got these stimulus payments that are going on. We got tired. We got to, we got to throw cold water on everything. We got to, we got to make it. So there's maximum liquidity in everyone's pockets because we just don't know what's going to happen. And so that means, ah, you know, student loans, uh, don't pay them for right now. Well, we're going to, we're going to put on a moratorium, which given the crisis circumstances that we initially found ourselves in, in regards to the pandemic makes a degree of sense, defensible on the merits, even if you disagree, but those circumstances haven't existed for, what, at this point, at least 18 months? 
middle of 2021 is probably when the 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 boot heel was lifted from the neck essentially everywhere in terms of like lockdown policy because that's right. kind of when there was a full penetration of the initial vaccine regimen and that that served as a sort of op- initial opening there was intermittent you know masking partial lockdown partial restrictions until very early 2022 depending on where you were but by then that was all gone by February, even March, in, 2022. Even in, like you said, in mid 2021 is where we started having workers weren't coming back was a bigger problem than workers are being furloughed. There was already starting to be a tight labor market and demand for workers to come back. And in theory, this should let, the moratorium on student loan payment ends except for specific hardship, i.e. someone who has cancer and doesn't want to go back to work in retail. There were already exceptions for disability and health-related claims. But for most people, you're vaccinated. They were fine to go back to work. Yeah, I I would even make a case that even pre-vaccination, the the exigent circumstances that were used to justify the pause really didn't exist anymore. The, it had, by November of 2020. So two years ago, I think there was sufficient information out there to know like economic activity is largely going to continue aside from, you know, these cases of large social gatherings, you know, you're not necessarily going to have concerts yet at that stage. You know, there's some things that weren't necessarily going to happen, but in terms of the nuts and bolts of the economy, those had already started working again by then. But even if you go ahead and, and, and take it all the way to May of 2021, when you've yep. got full infiltration of the, of the vaccine into public hands, anyone can get it that wants it, right? And that was the case by then. Then that's when it should have ended. But what happened? Well, there was a change in management by May of 2021. And suddenly, uh, the president of the United States, who for some reason has sole authority to decide to do this. No, he doesn't. Sole authority to decide to suspend payments, evidently. Uh, yeah. Because that has gone unchallenged in court, as far as I'm aware. Um, uh, it might be challenged if the cancellation doesn't happen and we just indefinitely suspend as a workaround. That'll be fun. I feel like that's inevitably where we're headed, right? Like, yeah, this is a, this is the clearing down of the gauntlet of, well, if you're not going to give us the, the forgiveness quote unquote, which really isn't just a debt transfer scheme as they like, as, as they like to point out on commentary. Um, even if you call it forgiveness, the, the, the policy they're laying down here says, well, if you're not going to give us what we want to do, we're just going to create this, awkward frozen and carbonite circumstance where uh, we just won't make anyone pay any of their student loans until you give us what we want, I guess. Like I, that seems to be what they're saying is what's you know, if the Supreme court says no, then we'll just freeze it for another six months and we'll come up with some other way to try and forgive the debt or we'll forgive all of it. And we'll go back to court again. I don't know why, where, where does this, at some point, the, his legal authority has to be challenged, right? Yeah, I think 
after there's a it it will all depend on the actual ruling on the merits if it ever happens with these current cases because if he has the authority to cancel it we're all done here if he doesn't then it's only after that that there's a point to resolve the question of does he have the authority to kind of suspend temporarily and temporarily in legal terms where yes the law cares about if you're using temporary to mean indefinitely but I, I, what, I, what i'd prefer to see frankly at this point is a direct challenge to biden's capacity to continue to identify um the pandemic as an ongoing state of emergency because that's the legal fig leaf with which he is using to to do this right he's maintaining the the same declaration that Trump made in March of 2020. We've got emergency declarations going back to what the 80s. And that's where I wonder if there's a lane to get into to say this is a clear abuse of power. There is no longer an emergency related to COVID. None of the circumstances that existed in March of 2020 exist now and this must this power must be restrained or this declaration must be removed. I'm I wonder if that might not finally happen because this is such an egregious use of of authority to clearly extend this as a consequence of a political matter and nothing whatsoever to do with covid. I guess that's where I really object is they're they're not even acting like COVID is part of the problem anymore. Like before, you've got these little, little justifications of like, well, you know, this happened. Or, well, there was the Omicron surge. And we got to extend it a little bit longer. And, you know, like, and now everyone's getting back into the labor markets. We're going to extend it a little bit longer. There was always this little justification as to why they needed an extra 90 days or an extra six months. This is just straight up. We said we were going to forgive the debt. The courts have held it up, so we're not going to make anyone pay until this is settled. That is not in your fucking statute that is allowing you to to have this power to begin with. That's not in there. Right. So when do you, when do we finally stop this? So I'm not I am not a lawyer. I don't even play what on TV. But from a Madisonian perspective, this is all clearly legislating. Like this is yeah. determining what the law should be, which is se- basic separation of powers 101 is outside of the president's responsibility. And it won't stop until the Supreme Court makes them stop because it's in everyone's interest for this to continue. The, the individual members of Congress don't want to have to take a hard vote of should we extend the emergency? Uh, Biden doesn't want it to end because you know, his base is pressuring him and the young staffers that lead him around by the nose are pressuring him. Um, so it will continue until the Supreme Court makes them stop. And, and they should. I, I, I say they should, again, from that Madisonian perspective, not a, I know the ins and outs of the legal case i don't i don't pretend to but it would be nice if <laughs> the law lined up with yeah the uh, you know uh, article one section one all legislative powers are income <laughs> are 
I, mean, I remember telling you back in, I want to say, maybe it was a year ago when we were traveling together of like, oh, they're clearly going to end the student loan stuff soon, right? Like, it has to end. I can't continue like this. Yeah. And it's it's extremely inflationary. I mean, think about the mass of college graduates, both past and recent, right? There's a whole, there's whole classes of, of graduates from, from schools of the last three years who have never paid student loans in their life, right? There's never had to, never been asked to. Well, there was that whole CNN panel that found that they mostly spend it on the surplus on consumption goods because of course, yeah. consumption is good. We're we're pro consumption, but not at the expense of paying your obligations. And you know, is, college is expensive in real terms. We have a bunch of very smart people dedicating all of their time to educating the next generation. There are real costs. When there are real costs, they have to be paid. And it's such an inflationary act to tell your best educated and highest earning people in the country that they don't have to pay the portion of their income that they are supposed to tithe back to the system that educated them to begin with and finance their education for them. And as you mentioned, what happens with these people? Well, that three or four or $500 a month that they were going to pay towards their student loans, instead they are putting into the economy on whatever consumer goods that they want, which guess what has created this deeply inflationary environment that we have are, are presently going through too much money chasing too few goods, basic macroeconomics. So they're making their inflation problem worse by not turning off this unlimited spigot of extra money that's just going in and taking up so much fucking space within the economy. And go ahead. From a public policy perspective, if what you care about is inflation, and you should, the easiest win in the world is ending this program. Absolutely. But they can't because it's... Because they're all fucking both, Democrat voters. I mean, that's just the suspension and the cancellation are pure 20th century style client service. Like this, this should be Teapot Dome 2.0. <laughs> yeah, this should be scandalous. This should be an egregious abuse of power so that the White House can pay off directly into their pocketbooks a specific loyal constituency to them. That is what this is. We, we, we saw the results in the last midterm. You had all of these working class populations across racial lines. We called it in advance, right? It was Race was going to start to fall away as the main political driver for understanding partisanship, and it was going to become class. And class did not associate necessarily with income, and it associated with education level. And sure enough, what did we see? Record Hispanic turnout for the GOP. Record black male turnout for the GOP. Record working class white turnout for the GOP. But man, did all the college educated millennials and Zoomers vote Democrat. Every fucking one of them. They won, they won that demo by 40 points. The two of us are holding out. Yes, except for the two of us. We're part of that, we're part of that small percentage that have retained their sense. But Well, of course, neither of us would benefit from federal cancellation. So maybe this is just a... 
one long episode of where you stand depends on where you sit. Yeah, I try to I try to keep that in mind when I when I feel the way I feel about this of like, am I just bitter because I have to pay mine? Right? Like that's that always has to be on your mind when you're in a position like I am, which is I don't get to benefit from this program. And if I do the math and I look at how much money I would have not spent over the last uh, at this point, two and a half years, uh, you know, yes, I would have about $30,000 in my pocket and that would be pretty great. There's a lot of things that one can do with $30,000 that they wouldn't have to spend on their student loans. Uh, buy at least one time of life, at least one, possibly two future site foils. If you're, if you're, if you're a good boy, uh, but I make a good income paying. It is not a problem for me. Um, that is money that for me would go into consumer goods for the most part. Some of it would be saved, you know, in my 401k or whatever, but a lot of it would get spent. Honestly, a lot of home improvement projects here and there, things that are necessary, but would, you know, be nice. That's what it would go to. And what is that? That's the same fucking problem we have everywhere. Like I would just be participating in it rather than presently where I am not. Right. right? And I, I think I can say with comfort that I hate the just the the total rejection of the duty that people apparently no longer feel towards paying their debts and that you should pay the money you borrow. That's the deal. That's that's the capitalist deal that we've set up for these capital markets to begin with. And so this, yeah, go ahead. So this one might be a little, little spicy, but uh very small version of me, like 10 or 12 when the 2008 financial crisis happens, immediately thought when people started, there were all these explainer articles about what does it mean for a home to be underwater? And you would walk away from the mortgage if your home was underwater. And very small me was like, well, but you you promised to replay the loan. Yeah, It doesn't matter if it doesn't make economic sense. You should fulfill your obligations. What are you, uh, an honorless cur? <laughs> like, <laughs> what yeah, man, do you pretend to be, sir? Markets are not amoral. There's this great story about uh, a Russian uh, hotel owner. And a traveler books the hotel for the night and shows up in the hotel owners in, in Russia's brief experiment with capitalism. And the hotel owner says, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have a room for you. Someone else offered me more money from it. It's it's important to the functioning of markets that people honor their, their side of deals that are struck. Uh, having a low trust society that comes with people's word not being trustworthy is incredibly expensive. Yeah, we... Yes, you will have to sometimes sacrifice some free rent, some economic upside for you personally in order to make a system that's based on a degree of trust to work. That is what you will have to do. And the whole point is everyone is doing that. So yeah, you sacrifice some on that you had to reject a better offer for that room and have to honor the commitment you made to someone else's reservation for that room. But... On the flip, when you are in that circumstance, that same favor is being done for you. That's the whole plan. 
And suddenly you've got a whole cohort of educated professionals uh, who have decided they don't need to be part of that system anymore and that the government should just snap its fingers and make all of this go away as if it were that easy without consequence. And they've been convinced, by the way, that it is. That's part of the problem, is that the constituency that is benefiting from this is convinced that this is all a fugazi and that you can forgive all of this debt and that there will be no negative consequence that comes as uh, by doing so. This is just a, an economic weight on millennials and Zoomers and that removing it, uh, that oppressive weight uh, is just, it, it prevents some fat cats from, from profiting from it, I guess, but really that's it. And they have no appreciation for the vast economic foundation on which this whole process has been built that would come crumbling to ashes if you did that. They've been sold it as a benefit. Like, oh, you would create all these jobs and millennials could start businesses that they can't afford to start now. Uh, And part of that is a consequence of being in a non-tight economy for so long. Creating jobs is a bad thing. You can create jobs digging and filling the same ditch that would turn the economy into dust because you'd have all this money flowing around, but nothing would actually get produced. What we care about is food getting delivered in trucks and people getting their spreadsheets emailed to them. Very important deliverables. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Especially for you and I. (laughs) As men who who feed their families on the power of our Excel spreadsheets. Very important. But jobs are a cost. There aren't... But... Because we the economy had so much slack for so long that people could get used to creating jobs as a positive good, anything that would tighten the macro economy was just seen in a positive light. And now that the macro economy is too twi- tight, we don't have the language to to comprehend slowing it down because what do you, what do you mean we have to slow it down? That's not... That's not how we've thought for decades and decades. Well, I I find it endlessly amusing that with the macroeconomic circumstances entering a clear recessionary dip um, in the first one in probably 12 years, uh, the, the, the jobs that are getting axed are the ones without economic utility. And immediately so. Like all of these tech layoffs that are happening right now, are happening at the DEI, you know, PR, non-economic usefulness parts of the organization, you know? And Twitter's obviously the biggest example, but that that almost you want to keep aside because it was a, a big ownership change is driving it's that. So generous. Yeah, like there's, there's a lot of other things behind it, but like you, Facebook just laid off a huge percentage of their DEI crowd uh, this is what happened to a lot of the entertainment companies that have already seen these layoffs like Netflix and Warner and now going to Disney like this. You you cut the 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 fat first and the fat is all the people who are absorbing resources and giving nothing in return. And that's the kind of job creation these kinds of these would be forgivers of student loans are interested in. They don't really want to do something economically useful because frankly, their student loans wouldn't be much of a barrier if they had an idea and had any access to capital to execute on it, they would have been able to do so, especially over the last like 18 months when there was just capital everywhere for those kinds of ideas where people were, I mean, there was so much money 
in the market that they went and just started buying single family homes, right? Like that, that's how that happened is, okay, cost of capital is 3%. What are we going to do? We got to, we got to invest this money in something that's going to make us money back, uh, given a low cost of capital that, you know, we, we can't just buy like treasury bills. Those are, are at sub 2% interest rates. We lose money doing that. Uh, what are we going to do? Okay, well, let's, let's take a hundred million dollars and let's buy all of the single family homes that we can in North Florida and we'll turn them into rental properties and we'll, we'll target like starter homes in the 200,000 to quarter million dollar range. We'll, we'll buy them up and you know, if we can rent them at $1,500 a piece and we have to pay maybe $400 a month and in escrow for, for taxes and insurance, we're going to get $1,100 a month on each of those homes. That's going to be around five and a half, six percent Boom. Done. Making my money. 3% cost of capital, 6% out the, out the back. You know, I've, I've got a percent for contingency when things go bad and I get bad tenants and I've got to manage things and then I've got a percent to pay all of the people. And then the fat cats get their percent and the, after that, right? Like you doubled the money. Good job. Everyone gets paid off. Like that's how much capital was in the market is that this, these are the schemes that have been going on. So if these guys had these great business ideas and job creation ideas and these things that would make money, oh Lord have mercy, was there enough money to make that happen? It was everywhere. But the problem is they don't have any fucking ideas. Especially for non-tech sectors. Like the tech sector is doing so much to prop up yeah. U.S. innovation in general, but also just like global innovation. It's also propping up employment. I mean, you don't need that many people to fucking run Twitter. Turns out, right? They had a head count that was fi- was uh, what, five figures. And they've shed it to low four, f- four figures. And guess what? Still works. Yep. Turns out a lot of those project managers... And, and and consultants were and and hall monitors were just kind of unnecessary, right? I spent I, a lot of time in my previous job in meetings of about six people talking about what work I would do. Uh, just like a project manager, my manager who did do work, but and then two other managers from another department. I was. I, had a consistent experience of sitting in the room going, none of you are going to do anything towards this project. You're just talking about how I'm going to be directed. And it felt like a sucker. I was like, why am I the only one in this room who's going to actually leave and then do something about this? There are suckers in these circumstances. And, you know, the, the, the environment that we have been in is, is, is the, makes a lie of the concept that somehow student loans are this huge economic weight that's preventing innovation. My brother in Christ, there has been plenty of money to fund innovation. It it, it is a matter of a bunch of, of people who just don't want to pay money out of their disposable income for the education that they enjoy. And they, they feel entitled to not do that. And now we have a, a system that is in hoc to them because it's being governed and managed by people who are within their political cohort. And 
you are using increasingly unsustainable legal frameworks to try and justify a regime that has long since lacked a justification. And I can only hope that this leads us down a path of some kind of legal challenge, not just to the student loan forgiveness slash deferment plan, but an end to the concept of unregulated emergency declarations without uh, a reasonable cause that could be proven in court uh, to to reflect that necessity. And I don't want to leave the impression that this is the first instance of client service since Teapot Dome. You know, you can you can we can talk for another hour about uh, the red states using the electoral college and the relative power of rural states to uh, have farm subsidies and sugar subsidies that are really also client service. But first of all, at least that's Congress. So there's a negotiation process where parties are represented. And second of all, it's, it's just not an executive order. That's so blatantly bad policy. Like not not even like, Oh, this is kind of defensible in that we have to have, enough soy to sustain ourselves in case of a war. Like, no, this is just really dumb policy that is done specifically for client service and no other remotely justifiable reason. Well, I have talked enough about things that irritate me. Gosh, darn it. Now what, what cloud would, would you like to yell at, sir? Uh, I, I don't, I don't yell at at clouds because I'm not an old man, unlike somebody else on this podcast. I would like to talk about election denialism, and I promise that we're not going to have a cold take on this. Uh, But first, I do have to kind of level set with kind of the level zero take, the, the obvious, you know, where the state of play is right now. So the state of play among non- deranged partisans for the most part, like generally serious thinking people. And I don't, yeah, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> it's just like, let's, I, I know you're trying to like apologize perhaps to those potential listeners to our show that maybe have these lingering thoughts and you don't want to insult them. Listen to that theoretical person. You're wrong. And you should reconsider your perspective. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you otherwise. (laughs) We don't cool our takes here. So the general state of play is Trump tried to steal an election. That was very bad. January 6th was bad. I think January 6th is probably overstated and the uh, Brad Raffensperger call is a little understated, but that's kind of my idiosyncratic. But the... Democrats have done similar things, if not as bad. We are continuing on the same path that's just a few steps further down that path of the complaining about Bush v. Gore, the complaining about Russia's stolen election. Um, yeah, well, the, the, the idea here is Trump bad, J6 bad, but there needs to be recognition of the fact that Democrats – tended to go down this road with some frequency in 2000 and 2004 and 2016 and without merit and without cause. And that, and even 2018 with Stacey Abrams, like that, that, that 
sowed a field that was then reaped by a a worse actor, certainly, but uh, that was, those seeds were planted by others, and that needs that needs to be part of the discussion. Right. A lot of the but democracy hystericals have you know famously retweeted things about stolen election Russia by Russia conspiracies and. We've talked about that before on the show, I believe. Yes. Uh, and also, the Democrats then go and promote a bunch of mildly or seriously crazy Republicans to be successful in the midterms. And this is bad because it demonstrates that Democrats are hypocrites. I think that's kind of the state of play, like the current the current field into which... I, I launched this barrage and, I, and I'm going to pick up there with, and it reveals that the Democrats are hypocrites is the worst way to end that argument because everyone's a hypocrite. This is, this is politics. Welcome. Yeah, Thank I you. Mean, replacement level morality <laughs> is the title of our show for a reason, right? Let's the best ways to break down political topics is to admit from the base that everyone is acting in an amoral fashion. Everyone is acting in their self-interest and they will use morality as a shield or a weapon. Uh, but that that is not a sense, not generally speaking, sincerely held beliefs that dictate political actions by any party. There is always on any topic, plenty of hypocrisy to go around. And I really enjoy defiant L's. It's a little one-sided. Like we all, we all know that the, like he's got his job and he does it well. But there's there's no shortage of hypocrisy, and you don't win by pointing it out. Nobody cares. Everyone knows that their guys are hypocrites too. Right. It's like almost just passing amusement is all it brings at this point. Certainly, no self awareness. So I would like to talk about why I think why the. The democratic promotion of election deniers is so pernicious. I'm hoping it's not the reason you think. The reason is that democracy is fundamentally a way to resolve conflicts without shooting at each other. And I've been thinking a lot lately about the ways that severe political crises in a classical sense end up resolved. So you think about the Civil War. A lot of people shot each other. Uh, the French Revolution. Napoleon takes power after a lot of people kill each other. Um, Napoleon took power because of incredible instability within the French state. But that instability came from there was no way to resolve conflicts without a bunch of people killing each other. Correct. So we have this tool called democracy as a way to resolve conflicts without killing each other. And in the 70s, there were nearly daily political bombings. Uh, Gerald Ford was the subject of two assassination attempts within a a 30-day period that were pretty serious. Like, they weren't some plot somewhere was foiled. He was literally staring down the barrel of a gun twice. uh, And this is not talked about nearly enough. But... Democracy isn't just a way, it's not, it didn't come from the ether, it, it is forged by elites for elites. Because in situations 
like the French Revolution, it's always the elites that end up killing each other. So back to democratic promotion of election deniers, in a revealed preference or GTFO sense, it shows that the Democrats, after everything, after, like you said, 2000, 2004, 2016, 2018, they're still willing, after everything that's happened, to keep pushing the ball further towards violence and away from a grand truce among elites. Because that's the only way a norm ever happens. That's the only way democracy ever happens is like the constitutional convention was a bunch of elites getting into a room together and saying, we're going to do this instead of fighting it out. Like we do, like we just did with the British. It's got to be from the elites. It has to be we we prefer having elections and then abiding by the results to a bunch of people killing each other. And Democrats revealed that they weren't willing to in, incur some cost, any cost at all. Running against someone marginally harder to defeat is not a high cost if what's on the line is a non-trivial chance that you die. There were a lot of bombings sent to politicians until in the 70s until they said, this has to stop. We have to make sure this stopped and ushered in and a compromise to cool the pressure a little bit on the political system because their safety was at stake. I mean, I think we're so far beyond, I think we're far away from that point still, which is if I'm going to dump some water, cold water on the, the doomerism of election denial and point out what a, not a big deal it is. It is that it almost feels like a luxury belief to care about it because there isn't real political violence in the United States. I say that as someone who deeply was distressed by the riots of 2020 and found them completely unacceptable and am 100% on board with the Tom Cotton uh, send in the troops, you know, use the Insurrection Act, bring order to these urban areas that appear unable or unwilling to bring order to themselves. Even even with that in mind, uh, there's been essentially no political violence within the United States. It's certainly not anything approaching the level of the 1970s. And it seems unlikely to develop, to be honest with you. Um, the the bigger concern to me is this general urban decay leading to more chaos, anarchy, unlivable areas, and then like a general sort of flight of civilization from those places as did occur. Uh, John Podhoritz, again, Commentary Magazine. We both listened to the show, so it's going to come up talked about how over the course of a decade, New York lost a million residents, like a million people left the city and went someplace else because of crime. The, that I, I'm more concerned about that occurring than wholesale uh, political violence, simply because the, like the militants of the seventies were more organized. They were more, they were more, uh, um, dangerous. 
uh, they were better armed and thus they were able to do these things. There were had there were there were all of the incidents of violence because they held the whip hand when it came to being able to threaten it. That is just not the case in they were 2022 more organized. America. They were more organized, but an individual dissident is so much more powerful now. Like think about how if the militias of the 70s had the universal dissemination of senior political figure addresses that has marked the past couple nearly avoided incidents of serious political violence. Uh, I'm thinking of Brett Kavanaugh and uh, the uh, Paul Pelosi. Mm-hmm. If, if the militias of the seventies had everybody's address, the way everybody has everybody's address now, there would have been a lot more deaths. So you don't need as many, you don't need as many crazies for a random crazy to pick up an AR-15 and make a serious dent. I'm not saying that an individual actor can't do serious damage, as we have seen in some close calls. But uh, that's baseball shooting. Right. And, that and, happened. That was a big deal. Yeah. Bernie supporter goes and shoots up a bunch of Republicans practicing their softball, practicing softball in Alexandria. Yeah. Like, not good. Uh, really bad stuff, but because it's because law enforcement is so effective now at finding and infiltrating political extremist groups to the point where, in order to make their careers, they actually sort of lead them down the primrose path of committing criminality and then bust them and then try and make a big deal out of it. Re the quote unquote kidnapping attempt of Gretchen Whitmer. I'm sorry, of Gretchen Whitmer, which ultimately fell apart when it went to trial because it was clearly the FBI arranged for it all to happen. So they could just like bust them. Right. They're, they're so good. They have these guys clocked so fucking clean and on both sides, by the way, you're seeing a lot of these Antifa guys get arrested these days for a reason. Uh, they're they're that underground political, uh, dissident movement does not have the same level of coherence required to actually affect consistent political violence. It will only ever be the lone wolves. Those are the only ones who are ever going to do it because anyone who tries to organize is going to get caught like that because the FBI got every fucking phone tapped. They're on every fucking messenger app. They're on the lookout for all of it. Well, we need to stop that, but we can have that conversation later. I mean, yeah, I mean, that may not be a good (laughs) thing, but it's true, right? Like, yeah. The guy who shot up the nightclub in in Colorado is in, embarrassed the FBI because they already arrested him once for that's like, making terroristic threats. Is you you probably have a better sense of this guy's rap sheet than I do, but there are big errors on both sides, both like false positives and false negatives. Like this guy was definitely on their radar, still went up and shot up a nightclub. Like, I mean, it, there are definitely cracks is too small there are caverns for people to slip through if they want to go shoot up another baseball game and and yes that will there will always be space for wackos to do fucking wacko shit and i don't think they will ever get the those chasms closed up enough that it won't happen but they i mean you compare this to the 70s where there just wasn't an infrastructure for crime fighting on this at all there certainly wasn't an infrastructure for any kind of effective you know, widespread uh, uh, 
information gathering and, and monitoring, you know, like wiretaps and, and that sort of technology was in its infancy, was difficult to deploy effectively. You had to have a lot of human intelligence in place that was hard to cultivate. You had to plant them. Like now it's, it's almost too easy to pick these guys off. Sure. And, and that's all granted. That's all true. But from a random congressman's perspective or a random RNC or DNC operative, the the cost does not have to be that high in terms of 1.5 successful assassination attempts before the benefit of I get someone slightly nuttier to run against starts to become smaller than I might get killed by a random wacko and we really need to cool down the temperature and start like having some agreement to uh, you know abide by democratic outcomes yeah and, I, and i see that i see your point there ultimately and and at some point democratic elites have to realize that that they have responsibility to turn down this temperature as much as their up their opposition because the the more they they play this game where they purposefully position themselves to run against crazies, the more they're going to encourage the lone nuts to do these things. And, you know, it doesn't happen enough that they really think about their personal safety. I don't know. Like we, you and I, unfortunately, we're talking before we started recording about how you, you consider the 99% probability versus the 1% probability. And then when the 1% happens, even though you knew it was possible, it completely sucks. That's XCOM baby. It is. And so what I think that's where they're at. They're at the 99% hit chance on that sectoid. And they're not like, they're not considering the consequences of the 1% in the slightest, even though they know what those consequences are. Like, eh, you know, I'm not going to get shot at the next softball game. You know, like we've got that angle covered. They just don't think it's going to be them. And so they see no reason why they need to stop. Yeah. And that's, as you often say, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I don't know that this actually ends without someone act, without you know one of these attempts actually happening. Yeah, it would require the assassination of a major political figure, but I think that might not even be enough because depending on who it is and who does it, it could just turn into a partisan political issue, which is probably much worse. Um, you know, what, but think what, about how crazy what you just said is. Yeah. Like, oh, somebody might get assassinated and that may or may not resolve it. Like I said, 1.5 was was the number I put out initially. I mean, with, that's, with what happened. It's a what, crazy thing that we just kind of said and is probably true, but you won't hear that anywhere but replacement level morality. Uh, we only have these takes, but let's use the Paul Pelosi situation as to build a hypothetical. And to be clear to the FBI, who is clearly listening to this along with everything else ever created through an algorithm and a machine, this is a hypothetical. Let's say uh, Paul Pelosi wasn't home. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was. Let's say would be wackadoodle uh, kills her. Maybe not on purpose. Maybe an accident. She's an older lady. She dies. Okay. Uh, what do you think the political reaction to that is? Do you think that like there's apps there is an actual laying down of arms in in this uh, in current partisan circumstance we're in? I I'm very doubtful to that. Very in doubtful. The, it, not in the immediate aftermath, for sure. Like Twitter is going to continue to be the way that it is. But 
what it does is every time the elites think about, you know, some casual LARPing of, yeah, I'll go along with this election denial that I know is BS, but I don't actually want to, like, pick that fight with my own side. That's in the back of their mind now. Yeah, I I think there's some amount of I could get got that maybe starts to creep into their maybe they think of it as the 85% chance to hit the sectoid. Now missing is a real possibility. But I don't know if that actually translates into change. I still think they decide to take the shot is what I'm saying, even if it's even if the hit chance goes down, you know, like. I still think their behavior remains exactly as it was because they're so pot committed to this current oppose, oppose your enemy at any cost, particularly for Democrats. Like they are so in the tank that there is no redeemable conservative. There is no redeemable opposition. It is all, it all should be criminalized. And the fact that the courts won't, will prevent it from being criminalized just, just makes the courts themselves criminal. Yeah, that's where they're at. So I don't think the elites are. I think the elites are, they know that they're leading the deranged partisans on. Right. Right? Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. They know. They're too smart not to. So they know that, okay, we'll say it this way. Maybe they're not pot committed to these ideas, but they know that their followers and their voters and their power is reliant on them continuing to feed that narrative. But only if... Republicans also are. You can both agree to cooperate if they're given the space to, you know, have that backroom channel and say, hey, we both need to agree to stop this or the violence won't end. And the violence has to get bad enough that it's worth it for them to do it. I'm not saying that the violence would be a good thing, but like as a matter of how this plays out. Right. The practicality has to outweigh their moral indignation at having to do so. The cost has to outweigh the benefits. I do believe that for, to the GOP's credit, they're far more willing to deal on that basis than Democrats are presently. I think your, your conservative elites kind of know that that's because they've had to deal with Trump for the last, you know, six years. They know like how bad it can be. And they would be happy to make this deal if Democrats would realize that it's in their interest to make it as well. Like they we have, have to, they have to exile Trump first. You can't be like, oh, we're definitely going to abide by the results of elections if Trump is still the leader of the party. You I just mean, can't credibly make that deal. Like, you know, you know, Trump's not going to agree. Er, you know, Trump's not going to go along with it. I do agree that, like disposing of Trump is a required part of this calculus, no matter what, but Democrats have to bring us back to where we started with this have elected to take a path on this whole question where they delegitimize the concept of, of Trump being legally elected as valid. That was their whole pose in 2016 that it couldn't have possibly have happened because they were corrupt and incompetent and people rejected them. No, it had to be fucking Russia that did it right with $200,000 worth of Facebook ads. You know, like that, that's, that's, that's just, that dog isn't going to hunt. Like they need to understand 
at a minimum, their failures that led to Trump before Trump can be eliminated or Trump's always going to stick around. Trump's always going to be there as long as the elites don't cop to the fact that Trump's whole his whole ability to succeed was based on him. Just as Dave Chappelle said on SNL, he came out of the house where they were doing all the cocaine and said, Hey, commoners, you know what we're doing in there? Piles of cocaine. And then just went back inside and started doing more cocaine with them. Then people had never seen that before. They'd never seen someone who was playing the game. Just admit what the game was to them. Right. Right. Like, Yes, I don't pay my taxes. You know why? Because the system that you built allows me not to. And you should change the tax code if you want to. But you're not going to. You know why? Because all your rich donor friends like it the way it is. Just like I do. Because I was one of your rich donor friends. They were uh, the, 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 There was no antibody response to this level of honesty. None. That's why he succeeded. I have made uh, this comment before, but there's a lot of elite correct indignation that giant middle fingers are bad. That's true. Trump's whole thing is he is the biggest middle finger to the elites that is around. But they spent no time wondering why so many people felt so inclined to give them that finger. Oh, uh, they spent like two months in like this November, December of 2016 soul searching over their defeat. That's when everyone read JD Vance's book. Remember that <laughs> on days of late 2016 when suddenly everyone had to find someone who lived in the sticks and ask them why they voted for Trump. Everyone had like, that's when uh, uh, Barry Weiss got, uh, got hired by the New York, uh, New York times was part of this like, oh God, how did we lose? Like a moment of self-awareness occurred before they like doubled back down into their safety of their like, no Russia did its bullshit and Mueller report and all of that crap. Mueller, she wrote. God, the cringe, the unlimited Twitter cringe. But yeah, the, the if you, yes, I understand no one likes being flipped off, but if you had decided to correct the reasons why people felt the need to flip you off, then Trump would already be gone. You wouldn't be having this fucking conversation. If you just accepted and instituted changes as Biden, as he kind of could have done of like, okay, I understand why you're mad. Tell you what, you know, we're going to move forward in this direction and that direction to institute a more populist economic position that supports the working class. Got it. I understand why you're angry. I get why you voted for Trump. I do. I understand. Scranton Joe. Like he was positioned to do this and then they just didn't do any of it. Instead, he wants to give away a bunch of money to college educated people, which is the exact fucking opposite of what these people need. All like, the people hey, that were doing cocaine. Hey, we're going we're, we're gonna to write them a check. Maybe that'll cool the anger. Anyway, I think that wraps us up for this week. Thank you for listening to an old man and a young man yell at clouds here on Replacement Level Morality, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.